Welcome to Peter David Podcast. The following program contains mature language and potential spoilers. Listen to discretion advised. Peter David, self-described writer of stuff, is a prolific comic book scripter and novelist. He's likely best known for being the longest writer on The Incredible Hulk, as well as his Star Trek novels. He's also had lengthy runs on X-Factor, Spider-Man 2099, Supergirl, Young Justice, Aquaman, Captain Marvel, and Spider-Man. He's the co-creator of Fallen Angel and Spyboy, as well as the creator and author of such book series as Nightlife, Sir Apropos of Nothing, and Star Trek New Frontier. He is without a doubt one of the best-loved writers in the history of the comic book medium. You got started in the sales department at Marvel under Carol Kalish, is that right? That is correct. I understand that when you tried to move over from sales to writing you had a lot of resistance oh it it caused a small uproar because in editorial at the time the concept was that if you did not work in editorial you were not creative because if you were creative you would work in editorial so it's kind of a circular thing so the notion that a guy from direct sales was interested in writing stories for editorial was absolutely unthinkable there was great resistance to the idea. After I managed to succeed at it, that resistance went away. Uh, a couple of years l- later, Fabian Nicieza came up to me and told me that uh, you know he was going to start working in the uh, marketing department, but told me he wanted to do the exact same I- thing that I had done, which was move over to editorial. So you basically broke that barrier for other people then? Yes, absolutely. I did. Jim Owsley was the first African-American editor and writer to work for a major American comic book publisher. He's a day better known as Christopher James Priest, writer of such series as Black Panther, Deadpool, and Power Man and Iron Fist, as well as a co-creator of Quantum and Woody. Was your main champion moving into the writing Jim Owsley? Yes, that's correct. Uh, Jim Owsley, um, there's really no other way to say it, was an angry young black man. And the reason that that is relevant is because he wore his attitude on his sleeve. At the time, he was the assistant editor for Larry Hama. And if anybody would come into the office and looking for Larry because they needed something, uh, they would say, is Larry here? And would Jim say no? And they'd say, okay, and they'd turn around and walk away. If I walked in and I needed something and Larry wasn't there, I'd turn to Jim and say, Jim, can you help me? Jim was very thrilled about this. He felt that... I was not dismissing him because he was black. I don't think anybody else was either, but that's how Jim perceived it. Anyway, that was Jim's attitude. Now, when Jim Jim was then promoted to editor, and he became the editor of the Spider-Man books, all of a sudden, all the people who had, he felt, no time for him back in the past, suddenly wanted to be his new best friend. Why? Because they all wanted to write Spider-Man. And Jim took... I would say great pleasure, if I were uncharitable, I would say malicious glee, in not having time for any of these people. I walked into his office, I who had gotten nowhere with previous editors when I had pitched ideas to them, and said, I have an idea for a Spider-Man story. Jim immediately got up, closed his door, sat down and said, hit me. And I pitched an idea for it to him. And he loved the idea, and it turned into Spec Spidey 103. Jim then hired me to do a couple of fill-in issues for Spider-Man. And then he committed the ultimate sin of firing the popular Al Milgram off of Spec Spidey 
and put, giving it over to me. This set up a berserker roar at Marvel because, in those days at least, you did not simply take some no-name new writer and put him on Marvel's flagship character. And it caused a great deal of ruckus. I'm told that it was actually discussed at, um, at various Marvel editorial meetings. Jean DeWolf was a sporting character in Spider-Man comics from the late 70s and early 80s. She made a few dozen appearances in various titles. She was Spider-Man's police contact in the NYPD, and her brother, Brian DeWolf, was the vigilante supervillain, The Wraith. Was it the death of Jean DeWolf that convinced Owsley to keep you as the main writer on the book? Um, yes, I think so. Um, Jim wanted to kill off Jean DeWolf. I don't know why. I don't know what Jean ever did to him. But Owsley wanted to kill her off, and he wanted me to write the story. And I went, okay. And uh, what I thought was kind of interesting was that Gene DeWolf had not appeared in a Spider-Man book for a year. When we killed her off, we got deluged from, with letters from people saying, oh no, how can you do that? Gene DeWolf was my favorite character. But I checked over. I made a point of doing so. I took a few hours and checked over every single letter that we had gotten to Spider-Man for the previous year and we did not receive a single letter saying, where the hell is Gene DeWolf? Why have we not seen anything of Gene DeWolf? If J. Jonah Jameson disappeared from the comic book for a year without explanation or Mary Jane or whatever, we'd have heard about it. Um, Gene DeWolf, nobody. Speaking from personal experience, I read the book sporadically when Al Milgram was doing it, and one of the other titles when, uh, I think it was Michelinie and John Romita Jr., and I remember seeing her, this Commissioner Gordon-type character in a beret, and she didn't resonate with me, but when I bought your first issue of Spectacular as the ongoing writer, and I saw that graphic scene of her demise, it shocked me. I'd never seen something like that in cosmos before as a young person. That character meant something to me after she died. She'd never meant anything to me before. Ah, okay, well, I can believe that. But still, it was just funny to see all this attachment and devotion to her after I killed her off. You know, but, you know, go, you, you can't really predict where the fan attitudes are going to be. Mark Beecham is a Neil Adams-influenced artist who worked on Spider-Man titles in the mid-'80s and is now best known for his erotica. It seemed to me that one of your first major collaborators in comics was Mark Beecham. Is that about right? Um, Mark was early on. He did a couple of Spec Spidey uh, Giants. Um... That was, I mean, you know, he, he, did, he did a bit. Um, he did those two specials. I think he may have done an issue of uh, Web of Spider-Man, but, or maybe it was Spec Spidey. But uh, he, we did a few things together, not a ton of stuff. You were going to do Saxon Violence together initially, though, right? No. No, I thought oh, he wait, did some wait, design oh, for you. Initially. Yeah. Um, yeah, I approached Beecham about it. I approached a couple of people about it. And then I wound up with George Perez, which, you know, was perfect. <laughs> Now, that was after Future Imperfect, right? Yes. Yeah. The New Universe was a Marvel Comics imprint created to celebrate the company's 25th anniversary, meant to reflect the world outside your window until a white event caused the manifestation of superhumans. The project proved to be one of Marvel's most spectacular failures, and most of the line had been discontinued within three years. Now, I assume that Jim Owsley was looking for people to do work on New Universe, and that's how you ended up on Mark Hazard Merck. Is that right? Yeah, well, pretty much. I mean, he actually had somebody else scheduled to do Mark Hazard Merck. Um, and I, now I'm blanking on his name, which is kind of embarrassing. Um, and, oh, no, wait, no, no, no. He was originally going to have Larry Hama do it. And then Larry begged off, and he came to me, which is probably a, mis which is probably a misfit. I mean, um, 
I did the best I could with Mark Hazard work, but doing a, the story, you know, about a mercenary, it, it really wasn't my usual cup of tea. Um, so, you know, I did okay with it, but it wasn't my best work. Again, I wasn't following writers at that point in time. Just on the sheer quality of work, I very much enjoyed the book. And I noticed about halfway through, I started a lot of interest. And I realized years later, it's because you'd stopped writing it. I was reading some Amazing Heroes, but they're talking... Murray. I think Doug Murray took over after. That's correct. And what was funny is I was reading some Amazing Heroes, and Owsley was pitching the book to that magazine, explaining that you were going to get more into the personal life and the dynamics there. And then once the book switched over to Larry Hama as editor, the big sell was, oh, we've got Doug Murray, and we're going to be doing more correct mercenary-style action. But I wasn't yeah. very interested in that, personally. Well, it, it really wasn't my thing either. I was much more leaning toward the characterization than having him get into the big mercenary adventures. I mean, my favorite story was him and his kids' uh, baseball team, ba- uh, baseball game. Yeah, it, very striking, memorable image, that one. Oh, thank you. Did you get to collaborate very much with Gray Morrow, or was it just that he got your scripts? No, he got the scripts. I mean, that was pretty much it. You went over to Hulk right around the time you were leaving Mark Hazard Merck. Was that a desirable assignment, or was it a situation where nobody else wanted it and you wanted the work? The latter. Yeah. Um, Bob Harris came into my office, and, you know, understand that I'd been fired off of Spider-Man at that point, mm. primarily because Owsley was trying to keep his job. So I had no, pretty much no assignments at that point. And Bob Harris came in and asked if I would be interested in writing The Incredible Hulk. And he said, it's not, and he said, have you been reading it lately? And I said, well, no. And he said, well, pretty much nobody had. And um, he told me that they've switched over the Hulk, so he's now the Gray Hulk. And um, Rick Jones is the Green Hulk. And my attitude was, why in God's name is Rick Jones the Hulk? Rick Jones should be the everyman. Rick Jones is the absolute last person who should become a Marvel superhero, which is kind of entertaining considering he's now a Marvel superhero, but go figure. But uh, Bob said to me, I could pretty much do whatever I wanted to on the title. If I want to get rid of the green Rick Jones Hulk, I could do so. And I said, I absolutely do. And and he said, and you can change uh, the Gray Hulk back to green. And I said, well, why would I want to do that? Because at this point, the Grey Hulk is intelligent. And having an intelligent Hulk who can talk like a person is going to be much greater to my strengths. Because even then, I knew that my best strength in terms of writing comic books was dialogue. And having the Hulk be the monosyllabic Hulk smash Hulk really didn't cater to my strengths. So uh, I decided to keep the Grey Hulk. I got rid of the green Rick Jones Hulk. And basically, I committed to doing six issues because I really had no freaking clue what I was going to do with the Hulk. Absolutely no idea. And I was doing up on reading. I was reading stuff of, you know, psychology texts. And I wound up reading about multiple personality disorder. And I realized, based upon a story that Bill Mantlow had written about uh, Bruce Banner's youth, that the Hulk suffered from multiple personality disorder, which explained for the first time why Bruce Banner had never been able to cure himself of being the Hulk. He had always approached it from the point of view of the gamma radiation. But the problem wasn't the gamma radiation. The problem was that inside him, Bruce Banner had multiple personality disorder. And he would have had MPD whether he was hit by the gamma rays or not. It turned out that... um, the gamma radiation aggravated the already existing problem, but it did not cause it. 
that's why his cure attempts had never worked, because all of his cure attempts addressed the gamma radiation, not what was going on inside his head. And I realized that if he really wanted to cure the Hulk, or cure himself of being the Hulk, he sh- we would do with him eventually what was traditionally done in the case of MPD, which was have hypnosis where you merge all the personalities to create one fused individual. And I thought that would be really interesting because he's still going to be big and green because he was hit by gamma radiation. But his personality will be a fully integrated Bruce Banner, which we have never seen in all the decades that this character has been around. And that gave me the overall view for my first four years of The Incredible Hulk, and the series just kind of went from there. It also made for a great application for Leonard Sampson after he'd already been around for a while. He found a whole new and very vital use for him, and that worked out great on X-Factor as well. Yeah, and not only that, it enabled me to use the Ringmaster, because if you're going to have hypnosis in the Marvel Universe, you're going to want to use the Ringmaster. (laughs) So it all was really very entertaining the way it all worked out. After you left Mark Hazard, you went back into the new universe for justice. What prompted you to jump onto a new universe book, especially once things were starting to take on water already? No, number one, they asked me. And number two, they were interested in completely changing the concept of justice. I was really not interested in writing a story about an other dimensional warrior. But they said, we want to take away the whole other dimensional thing. We want to have him be a normal Earth man who has these powers. And that sounded really intriguing to me. And I said, well, what do you have in mind? They said, write whatever you want. And I worked up Tenson's entire backstory and, uh, and the way that his powers were going to work and that whole thing. And I just had a field day writing The New Justice. I mean, I think I did it for like... 16 issues or something like that and I had a really good time you were actually one of the last books in that line if I recall correctly yes it's an old joke Frank doesn't pronounce it thesaurus he pronounces it thesaurus thesaurus and when I asked him what the fuck is a thesaurus he's like I don't believe in saying it thesaurus it sounds like a goddamn dinosaur three friends come my baby the world is not right the Looney Tunes Lions comes out too many topics Please, uh, sorry, my God, uh, Tron. It's just so much been there, done that. Super cookie-cutter hip-hop with it. One podcast. The lead singer of Nickelback doesn't have demons. He gave away his heart. Zero fucks given. How sad is it that Axl Rose didn't kill himself for OD? Django. 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 Where did the plastic stop and the human flesh start? Oh, no. Tony, you're close. We're about to kick out of podcast. The old fine podcast. It's just so well done. Jim Shooter is a decades-long veteran comic book writer who co-founded several comic book companies, including Valiant. But he's likely best known for his term as editor-in-chief of Marvel Comics from 1978 to 1987, an extremely polarizing figure. Shooter is often credited for turning Marvel into the powerhouse that it became in the 1980s. My understanding is that Jim Owsley gave you a rough time when you were getting started out in writing. And I've read in the past that a lot of that was from Jim Shooter. Jim Shooter was giving him heat about you, so he was giving you heat. Did things get better for you at Marvel because Jim Shooter was gone? Or was it just a different environment altogether once you became a recognized writer? Okay, well, first off, I want to say that Owsley remembers him being very, very difficult on me. I honestly don't remember it that way at all. Um... I mean, was he being an editor? Sure, but that was his job. And if he may have felt that he was being brutally difficult with me, 
but I sure didn't see it that way at all. Um, so whatever he has inflated in his mind about you know the torture that he put me through as I was writing Spider-Man is, to my mind, really his own invention. I did not get that at all. Um, in terms of the view of me as a writer, part of that, I think, stemmed from the fact that the editors became convinced that even though I was writing the book, I was writing for comic books, I was not using my position as sales manager to inflate my own sales. That was something that they were worried about. It was completely baseless. But they started to realize that, okay, number one, holy crap, this guy really can write. And number two, he's not abusing his power as direct sales manager to benefit from it. I think that people started to relax. Uh, it may very well be because Shooter was fired. Um, or it may just be that it's, it may have been the same thing that gay marriage is perceiving now. I mean, 20 years ago, gay marriage was unthinkable. Now, what, 37 states have okayed it, and pretty much in June, the Supreme Court's going to okay it, too. And the whole nation of Ireland this weekend. Yeah, the whole freaking most Catholic nation of Ireland, said by 70%. Yeah, sure, fine, whatever. You know, when, peop when you introduce something that people say is going to end the world... And then the world just keeps right on turning, completely oblivious to it. People tend to go, oh, okay, well, this actually isn't so bad. And uh, then they just stop objecting to it. So I don't know if it was the timing of shooters leaving or people just got adjusted to the fact that I was writing for Marvel Comics and uh, the world was still turning. You broke into DC doing work on their licensed books like Star Trek and The Phantom. How did that happen? I asked them. Basically, I was, I was exploring the idea of becoming a full-time writer. So I got together with Bob. I, I contacted Bob Greenberger, who's a friend of mine, still is. And I was still at that point an employee with Marvel Comics. So I basically said to him, I need to ask you a judicious question. If I were a full-time freelance writer would there be work for me at DC I could not ask him for an assignment at that point because it would be a conflict of interest I was still a Marvel employee he could not offer me anything because I could not take it because I was a Marvel employee I said to him if I became a full-time writer would there be work for you, me and he said absolutely there would be work for you so at that point, on Bob's, you know, re, you know, uh, promise, I went to Marvel Comics and I said, "Okay, I'm I'm quitting to become a full-time writer." At which point, I then got together with Bob and a couple of editors in, at DC for lunch, and they offered me the Phantom first, as I recall, and then they offered me Star Trek. So yeah, and, it, and it, you know, it went fine. Given that you're writing the Phantom again, I assume you have some affinity for the character. Uh, it would seem so, yeah, apparently. I mean, I've been saying for years that my dream project was to do The Phantom Meets Tarzan. And once I was given this assignment, I said, oh my God, now I can finally do The Phantom Meets Tarzan, which I would have been happy to do if Edgar Rice Burroughs' estate hadn't been dicks. 
So I'm I'm writing the exact same story I would have written anyway, except I have my own version of Tarzan. Your first mainstream work at DC inside the core continuity was Secret Origins for the Justice League of America. How did you come to write that? Because my understanding is the original creative team was going to be the same as the 1989 Aquaman series with Bob Fleming doing the script and Kurt Swan doing the art. Um, yeah, um... Okay, you're asking me to cast my mind back 30 years. <laughs> as I recall, I didn't, I didn't script, I didn't write that. I scripted right. over an existing story, and I guess what happened is that the assigned writer simply either didn't have the time, or flaked out, or whatever, and they asked me to write it, and I said, okay, sure. But uh, I really didn't think about anything much beyond that. I mean, I'd love to tell you there's some sexy story behind that, but there's really not. It was like, hey, Peter, we have this book. Can you script it? Okay, sure. That's it. The whole, the whole story. Given that you were already building a reputation as a comedy writer and you had Justice League International going at that time, I've, I just read the script again last night. It was quite funny. Did anybody ever approach you about maybe taking over that book once Giffen and Emmanuel were leaving? Because you didn't seem like a perfect fit. That's a great question. No. <laughs> Had you previously read the Steve Englehart story, Justice League Minus One, where there's a retelling of the origin of the Justice League that was like a secret origin based in the 1950s? Not that I recall, no. You worked on Atlantis Chronicles with Esteban Moroto. I did. A great experience? Oh, it was fantastic. I loved writing Atlantis Chronicles. I had so much fun with that series. And what's really killer is that I was at a, a DC Christmas party or something like that, and Jeanette Kahn and Paul Levitz were raving to me about Atlantis Chronicles because they loved how it was turning out. And Jeanette said to me, we are going to give this book the Watchmen treatment. We are going to collect this as a trade paperback. We're going to put out merchandise. We're going to make sure that everybody loves this comic book, which they then proceeded to do nothing with. Atlantis Chronicles remains uncollected some 30 years later, which royally pisses me off. When I wrote Atlantis Chronicles... I wrote it full script, and the script was translated for Esteban Moroto, who only speaks Spanish, by his daughter. So in the first issue, I decided to have it be that the reason Atlantis sank was because of a meteor strike, which a number of Atlantean scholars believe is what happened. So I described that the meteor was drawing closer and closer. And at one point, around page 30, I said... Um, I said, we can, I said, you know, panel one, the meteor has drawn closer, and for the first time we can now see the face of the meteor, its craggy surface and exterior. Now, when I said face, I meant front, surface. We got the pages back, and to my astonishment, Esteban Barodo had drawn a death's head skull face onto the meteor. And I'm looking, and I'm going, holy crap, there's an actual face. And the closer it got, the more clear it was that this giant death head skull was coming at you. And Bob Greenberger, who's my editor on it, said, do you want me to have uh, uh, art corrections? Change it. And I looked at it, and I said, no, you know what? I like it. And this, is, this was my reasoning. If a meteor is coming toward you, and it's an ordinary meteor, you might have hope that you're going to survive. <laughs> if a meteor is coming towards you, and it has a giant death's head skull, you're done. That's it. Don't read any continued stories. <laughs> you know, 
you're you're going to pack it in because if the death's head skull is coming at you, your ticket's going to get punched. And so we left the death's head skull in there. And I wound up thinking, you know, there should really be some freaking reason that a meteor with a death's head skull is coming at them. And I wound up then developing the entire storyline in Aquaman that explained that it was not a meteor but a gigantic spaceship, which made sense to me. Happy accidents can yield some pretty great stories. Uh, oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, I, I just thought that was hysterical that Esteban drew the skull face on there, and I wound up sticking with that. And why did it take so long for you to end up on Aquaman? It was such a huge gap between that miniseries and you're finally taking over the Aquaman book. There was initially resistance because the editor of the series completely misread issue 7 of the Atlantis Chronicles and thought that I was portraying Aquaman's birth as an immaculate conception and that I was basically putting forward the notion that Arthur was a Jesus figure which wasn't anything that he was interested in. However, the guy who was writing the Aquaman series before I was uh, apparently wasn't writing anything that was very popular and people weren't interested in reading it. And someone at DC said to him, for God's sake, go talk to Peter David. And I went out to lunch with him and he told me about his concerns. And I immediately said, no, it wasn't an immaculate conception. Land the wizard was there. He had sex with her, and that's where Aquaman came from. I said, I'm Jewish. I'm it doesn't really occur to me to write Jesus Christ references into my books. It's not really part of who I am as a writer. And that immediately eased up the editor, and he felt much number one, I think he felt badly that he had come to that conclusion. And number two, he felt much more relaxed then about the prospect of my coming onto Aquaman. And so I then started the series with doing a four-part Time and Tide, and then from there went into the ongoing Aquaman series. And I had a lot of fun with it. Obviously, the people who create comic books want you to read the things. Comic books aren't meant to be precious. They're pop art. They're junk culture. But there are culture. If you're listening to this podcast, it's your culture. Most people, when they talk about comic books, they're talking about the so-called big two, Marvel Comics and DC Comics. It strikes us, though, that the entire comic book industry is undervalued by the general public. As comic aficionados, we'd like to have a podcast out there that covers the entire rest of the industry, and for that purpose, we will be your underguides. If you're sitting around and you find yourself bitching about comic books all the time and how comic books suck and how back in your day comic books were good, take a listen to the underguides, and you'll maybe open up a little doorway to some independent comic books that you hadn't read before. It doesn't have Spider-Man in it, or a Wolverine, or a Green Lantern in it, but it talks about people's lives and stuff and sometimes you can identify with. If you're wondering where all the good writers and stuff went that don't write your comic books anymore, they're making independent stuff, so maybe we, we may cover it, and you may find something you can go, go check out. You were one of the earliest and most vocal critics of Image Comics. So you had the whole name withheld, Eric Larson, kerfuffle. Yeah. You had the debate with Todd McFarlane. In the years since, Image has grown up and become a company that's pretty well regarded in terms of how they deal with creators and, and the opportunities presented there. How do you feel about Image Comics today? I felt about Image Comics back then exactly the same way I felt about every other comic book company, which was if they said something stupid, I commented on it. All I did was hold them to the same level that I held Marvel and DC and Archie and whoever else. 
and they put out some initial press releases and commentaries that I thought were monumentally stupidly written. It was really no more involved than that. And Image went totally batshit crazy. They went totally nuts because I guess they were expecting uniform support from everybody. And all I did was comment on things that turned out to be utterly prescient. Um, I said that having seven different spokesmen was a recipe for disaster, and they should pick one of them to be the spokesman, which they eventually did. I also said that, you know, seven guys teaming up for business, you really should have your lawyers look over your contracts, because sooner or later, you guys are going to have a falling out, which they eventually did with Rob Liefeld. So, you know, everything that I said about Image turned out to be 100% correct. A little factoid that they still don't like to think about even decades later. Um, But I didn't have any issue with the notion that they wanted to go off and do their own stuff. I just questioned the way they phrased it. When they said, you know, in many ways, we've been holding back. I'm going, and that means what? What are you talking about? You know, what do you mean, holding back? You mean you haven't been giving your best work up till now? Um, (laughs) You know, and which obviously isn't what they meant, but that's what they said. So I was interested in what they said. Um, So now, you know, they they seem to have settled in, and uh, they have a business model that they've managed to make work for them. Um, I mean, they, remember, they were originally being distributed by Malibu. I said, yeah, that's going to last. Yeah. Which, of course, and they got outraged over that. And then a year later, Malibu was, you know, so um, the bottom line is I was right about everything. The fact that they have <laughs> continued to prosper since then is excellent. And I think a nice commentary on the business of comic books. But I really... Don't give much thought to them beyond that. Getting back to your gift for prognostication, you called years ago that Amanda Connor was going to become a superstar, and she did. Oh, yeah. Do you know if anything's ever going to be done with Soul Searchers and Company? I have absolutely no idea. The person asked about that would be Richard Howell. Do you have any creator-owned work coming up that hasn't been announced yet? Um, I have novels that I'm working on. I don't have any creator-owned comic books, definitely, although I might be. Thank you very much, sir. It's been an honor and a blessing to speak with you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Director Fury, the internet is besieged with lame, lifeless podcasts. What we need is a hard-charging, foul-mouthed band of brothers with chemistry, big brains on comics, and personality. Personality goes a long way. What we need is the Marvel Superheroes Podcast. I'm the legal machine. Diablo Frank. And I am Mr. Fixit. The Marvel Superheroes have arrived! Nick! Internet radio is saved! Get this motherfucking podcast off motherfucking iTunes. The Marvel Superheroes podcast can also be found on Shout Engine, the Internet Archive, and on Rolled Spine Podcasts blogs.